This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. And now, from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is the Business of Healthcare. Here is your host, John Barquette. Welcome to the Business of Healthcare. I'm your host, John Barquette, the Director of Policy Affairs at Willis Towers Watson, an alumnus of the Wharton Healthcare Management MBA program. The topic of today's show is the rise and shocking collapse of the once-heralded blood testing startup Theranos. I'm lucky to be joined in the studio by John Carreyrou, the Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative reporter for The Wall Street Journal, who first broke the story and pursued it to the end. John chronicles the collapse of Theranos in his book called Bad Blood, Secrets and Lies in the Silicon Valley Startup. Joining me in the studio is John Carreyrou. John, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Um, Before we get started in on the book and on Theranos, give us a background of your career and how did you get into journalism? Right. I I actually kind of marinated in in journalism um, as a kid. Uh, I grew up in Paris, France. My father is French. My mother is American. And my dad was a um, a pretty prominent political uh, journalist in France. And um, so I was always in that environment. And then I came to college here. I went to Duke University. And uh, I wanted to give other things a chance, so I didn't uh, try to write for the school paper uh, or do anything really uh, related to journalism. And after four years at Duke, um, I kind of graduated and— You joined the family and, business. And immediately uh, gravitated toward toward uh, news and uh, news gathering. And, uh, you know, one difference with, with my dad is that he, he was always a broadcast journalist— um, he's semi-retired now, but he was on the radio for 17 years, and then the, the last 20 years of his career were on French TV. Mm. And I knew that I wanted to write and um, that uh, if I was going to be a journalist, it was going to involve writing. So newspapers uh, seemed to be what made the most sense. And uh, I started out my career at Dow Jones Newswires, which is the sister wire service of the Wall Street Journal, and um, got hired uh, after three years uh, by the Wall Street Journal and, and was based in Brussels, uh, Belgium, for my first journal job. And then um, went back to Paris with the journal. was there five years and, and have been back in New York uh, in the main newsroom in, in Manhattan for 12 years now, 12-plus years. Typically doing investigative pieces? Right. I've been uh, really specializing in investigative reporting since 2010. Um, but what got me there is I'd always uh, – gravitated toward that type of story, the hard-hitting story where you do some digging, and and, uh, eventually that got me into the, formally into the investigative group at the journal. Um, Theranos, the company that, uh, whose rise and fall you chronicle in your book, um, I think it's pretty well known right now. There was recently a 60 Minutes episodes about it, Um, but for those who are listening who don't know, what is Theranos? Theranos is a startup that was founded in late 2003 by a young woman named Elizabeth Holmes. Uh, She was a 19-year-old Stanford uh, sophomore, and she decided to drop out. She had a vision uh, for a uh, medical technology startup that would would, uh, make a product, uh, a a sort of a semi-portable device uh, that would do the full range of blood tests from just a drop or two pricked from a finger. And um, she went about uh, building it and raising money and and hiring people, uh, firing quite a few people along the way. And uh, 10 years later, uh, rose to fame, uh, reached her company reached a valuation, peak valuation of $10 billion. She had kept half the equity, so she was worth almost uh, $5 billion. She uh, started to grace the, the covers of magazines and became a fixture at uh, tech conferences and health care conferences, was on TV. And she was she was kind of hailed as the second coming of Steve Jobs, mm-hmm. except she was a woman. She mm-hmm. even dressed like Steve Jobs. She wore a black turtleneck. And and I guess that's when I came along in, in 2015. Yeah, so what happened there? So she's on the cover of business magazines. She's being appointed by the Obama administration to different types of uh, advisory groups. What are you doing? You're writing investigative journal pieces, and how does it come to your desk? Right. And I, I had been writing about more or less about medicine for, for 10 years, almost without interruption. Um, and uh, I was based in New York, so uh, you know neither of those things have much to do with Silicon Valley. But I had been watching from afar 
what I consider to be the second uh, Silicon Valley bubble, you know, the second in the past 20 years, the first being the, the dot-com boom. Um, and uh, I was reading about it, and I, and I thought to myself, you know, this is – first of all, I can't believe this is happening so soon after the, the, the dot-com boom, which was a ridiculous period for those of you old enough to have uh, witnessed it. And and then I thought, you know, uh, this time it's clear that it, it's different because the, the companies aren't going public. Uh, they're raising so much money on the private markets that, you know, they can they can stay private. And therefore, um, you know, there's less transparency. And that all spelled to me as an observer from afar. You know, it was like the ingredients for excess and, and potential fraud. And so I, I was aware of that. Um, and, and then, you know, I uh, read... And at the same time, I wasn't aware of Theranos uh, and Elizabeth Holmes, even though she had uh, arguably become uh, quite well-known in Silicon Valley about a year prior. Um, what put her on my radar was a magazine profile uh, in the New Yorker magazine of her in late 2014, mid-December 2014. And I read that story. I thought it was interesting. I was, I thought there were some things in that story that were odd, Um uh, you know, the very notion uh, at the heart of, of Elizabeth Holmes's story being that she had dropped out as a, you know, uh, a sophomore who had really no training in, in certainly in medicine and barely any in engineering, and that yet she had dropped out and added value. Um, I knew that um, in, in uh, science and in medical science in particular, it, it takes formal training and decades of uh, research before you add value and before you make breakthroughs. And, you know, if you look at the roster of uh, Nobel winners in medicine, uh, they usually all win their Nobels in their 60s. Right. Um, so uh, it definitely, that story struck me as odd. You know, to be fair, I may not have done anything with it if I hadn't gotten a tip a few weeks later. And I did get that tip. I, I picked up the phone one day, I think it was early February 2015, and uh, it was a guy named Adam Clapper, a pathologist in the Midwest, who um, uh, moonlighted as the writer of this obscure blog, the Pathology Blog, which he spelled B-L-A-W-G. <laughs> and as it happens, uh, what had put Theranos and Elizabeth Holmes on his radar was that same New Yorker story. Mm. And after reading it, he had written a little skeptical item on his blog and had immediately been contacted by... Uh, an adversary of Elizabeth Holmes's uh, who saw his item and, and called him and told him, you know, you're on to something, uh, that this company's a fraud, you need to dig deeper. Um, and, uh, you know, his initial reaction was, this is interesting, but I'm not sure there's enough to do more. And then uh, the, the person who contacted him, which for anyone who's read the book, will, will you know, this will be a familiar name, Richard Fuse, um, had been uh, uh, a litigation adversary of Elizabeth Holmes. They had battled over a patent, and he had once been her childhood neighbor in Washington, D.C. Well, a couple days after reaching out to, to the pathology blogger, he made contact with a, uh, an employee who had just departed from Theranos, and that employee was a key employee because he had been the director of the laboratory at Theranos. And Fuse had gotten uh, an initial sort of uh, account of uh, shenanigans and of uh, what essentially amounted to fraud at Theranos. And so he immediately immediately got back in touch with, with Clapper of the pathology blog, who at that point realized, wow, this story really does have legs. But at the same time, he didn't, you know, he's not a reporter uh, by training. He's running a real, uh, a full-time pathology practice in Columbia, Missouri. And he thought, you know, I, I can't take this on myself. So he called me. Um, he and I had talked the previous years. He had helped me with a story, um, and uh, and he called me, and and, uh, that, and that's how I I came on the story. Uh, so it's hard to separate the company from the founder. Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos are are one and almost seemingly one and the same. Um, you mentioned her background. She didn't necessarily have a big background in medicine or science. Um, what? Like, did you ever have you ever talked to, with her yet? I mean, have you been able to interview her? No, she um, has uh, steadfastly refused to speak to me for three years now. I, I started uh, trying to uh, interview her in I think it was late April of 2015, a couple months into my reporting, 
And then by the time the story was published in October 2015, and it had been more than five months, and she refused to either meet with me in person or or talk to me on the phone, which in itself was highly suspicious because, you know, she she was um, taking interviews with virtually everyone. Um, she, you know, she was going on Charlie Rose. She was going on Jim Cramer's show on CNBC. She was talking to the, the big business magazines. Um, and so I see it seemed like I was the only reporter in America she didn't want to talk to. I mean, of course, she knew that I'd been digging into the company and, and her PR people had asked me in advance, you know, what the topics were that I wanted to to touch on with her. So I think she um, was aware that I wasn't going to fall as easily for her claims. And and um, and her response was not was not to engage with me. Um, you've attributed so much of the company's ability to to fool people to her personality. And that's what she was doing. She wouldn't want to talk with you, but she was everywhere. Right. And everyone was a believer in this company. Yeah. Um, what was it about her that made her so captivating? Yeah, I, I mean, I would I would just say that it wasn't just her personality. That it, Her personality was, was absolutely part of it. Um, and you haven't talked to her, so this is through observations and talking with other people. Yeah, yeah. I, I would say there were enabling factors, environmental factors, so to speak, um, you know, the second bubble, by the way, it still hasn't really deflated. Um, back in 2014, 2015, you could say maybe it was the peak. Um, there was a gold rush mentality. Uh, it started really in 2010 when people became aware of how much, uh, how valuable Facebook was, which was then confirmed a year later with its IPO. And and everyone wanted to become the, the next Mark Zuckerberg. Everyone wanted to ride the next rocket ship to riches. And People thought that uh, Theranos was going to be one of those rocket ships. And so I think in this gold rush environment uh, that existed out there, that in some ways still uh, exists out there, um, people fall into um, or or, are less uh, discerning. Um, And I think that's what happened to a lot of people who came into contact with her and with uh, Theranos. Uh, that said, um, I don't think she would have been able to pull it off without her charisma, without... um, you know, her smarts. She's yeah. incredibly intelligent, uh, just an incredible pitch woman. Uh, her idol was Steve Jobs. And, and as I say in the book, like Steve Jobs, she has this reality distortion field. You know, she's got these big blue eyes that, that seemingly um, can uh, go longer without blinking, you know, than, than the average human. And so they sort of hypnotize you when she's talking to you. And she um, uh, artificially lowers her voice. Uh, to sort of give herself more gravitas. And, and 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 I would say also the reason that she was so believable is that it wasn't entirely a house of cards. It wasn't entirely a lie. It's not like she had dropped out of Stanford 15 years ago setting out to, to uh, pull off a long con and to put patients in, in harm's way. That, that's not how it started. She started out wanting to be a Silicon Valley uh, entrepreneur who who achieved great success, who watched, who walked in the footsteps of of Steve Jobs and Larry Ellison and Bill Gates and others, and um, you know this morphed into a fraud eventually because she didn't acknowledge her setbacks to her investors or to her board members or or to the media, and and it got to a point when she went public with the technology and with the the blood tests where. What she claimed she had achieved and what and what she had really achieved, the gap was so big that it became de facto a fraud. But I think what to come back to what we were talking about earlier, the reason she, what made her in part so believable is that she had been working on a vision for ten, twelve years, and she had developed several iterations of the technology that she had in mind. They just hadn't gotten it to work. But that doesn't mean they hadn't tried, and that doesn't mean they weren't weren't working on it. They were. Let's be clear about what um, the, the fraud then actually was, because they were building technology. Um, how is it that you start reporting on it that it's not working as well as they're claiming it is? Right. And then what exactly happens? Because the news as of three weeks ago was that the company is now completely shut down. Is that right. correct? That's correct. Yep. Uh, it's it's September of 2018 right now. Um, you write your first article in 2015. Is that right? October 2015. Yeah. October 2015. And at that point, had w- were they committing a fraud? And if so, what was what was their actual fault, and what what got them in trouble? Yes, they they were absolutely uh, they had absolutely crossed the red line into fraud by then, and you could argue that 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 bright red line had been crossed 
um, two years prior in in the fall of 2013. Um, what happened is uh, in if you rewind back to then the fall of 2013, she announced publicly this uh, partnership with Walgreens, the, the Chicago-based uh, drugstore chain. Um, and uh, the beginning phase of the partnership were that uh, she was going to offer Theranos' finger stick blood tests in a few uh, Walgreens in Northern California in the Bay Area and then another 40 or 45 in Arizona. And, and then that was going to be a launch pad to eventually uh, spread nationally through Walgreens' eight, I think, 8,000-plus uh, drugstores. And when she went live in those two sort of test areas, Phoenix – and, and uh, the Bay Area, uh, the the last and third iteration of the technology was called the Mini Lab, and the Mini Lab was just a malfunctioning prototype. It did not work at all, and so what what she and her boyfriend, who was the number two of the company, decided to do is they ordered the uh, hacking of these regular uh, blood analyzers made by the German conglomerate Siemens, and. Um, uh, to to adapt them to tiny finger stick samples, and one of the the crucial um, modifications that they made is they ran these tiny finger stick blood samples uh, by diluting them. They diluted them in in a saline solution uh, so that the volume was big enough uh, to to be accepted by the the Siemens. Analyzers, and when you when you dilute blood, uh, given that every blood analyzer already has a dilution step in its protocol, you're essentially double diluting, and and then you're uh, diluting the sample so much that the the analytes in the blood uh, whose concentration you're trying to measure, uh, the concentration becomes so low that it's beneath the range that the FDA has approved the machine for. So you're really using at that point you're using the Siemens machines in a way that's that's not only not authorized by the FDA but wouldn't even be uh, condoned by the manufacturer itself, and and it opens all all uh, yeah, it opens room for a lot of errors and and that's what happened and and so they um, they did two things they they ordered the hacking of these Siemens machines and they they ran a, they had a menu of about 250 tests about uh, 70 or 80 of them were done with this dilution protocol on the modified Siemens machines. And then they had another subgroup of about 10 or 12 tests that they did on a, a prior uh, iteration of the technology, of the Theranos technology, which was called the Edison, which was a, um, uh, a type of uh, device that could only do one test. And funnily enough, if you, if you go back to um, 2007, late 2007, when the Edison was created, it was actually a, a, a glorified uh, Glue robot. It, it was it was a converted glue robot um, that was then adapted to, to blood testing, and it was a type of machine that could only do one type of test, known as immunoassays. So when they went live in the fall of 2013 with their supposedly revolutionary finger stick tests, they had 12 tests that were being done with with a converted glue robot that that was inaccurate and that could only do one type of test. Then they had another bucket of 70 or 80 tests that they were doing on. German Siemens machines that were hacked. And then there was yet a third bucket of 130 or so tests that were just done the, the regular old way with, with blood drawn from the arm um, with the, you know, the regular venous draw. So there was absolutely nothing uh, revolutionary to that. And, and the first person who put me on to, to all these details was the outgoing lab director who I eventually made contact with. And when he started describing all this stuff to me, it, it was apparent quickly that this amounted to, to fraud. It wasn't. It wasn't just corner cutting. It was. It was outright fraud because it, it wasn't what she claimed that she had done, what she claimed she had achieved, and and it was also something that was putting the the public in harm's way. It was putting patients in harm's way. For those just joining in, you're listening to the business of healthcare on Sirius XM 132. I'm John Barquette, and I'm speaking this hour with the Wall Street Journal's John Carreyrou about the rise and fall of Theranos. We were just recently talking, John, about how Theranos went to market with their product before the product was tested and really working well. Right. And in Silicon Valley, at a tech startup, that notion isn't thought of as a, as a bug. That's a feature. Getting to market and getting people to go and test your product. Right. 
um, to demo it, right? To pilot it, yep, is what you're supposed to do, right? You you want people to use it, and then you can use the user feedback, right, to make it better. Um, but in a healthcare product, th- th- there's a key difference, yeah. which is that that that's the way you do things in Silicon Valley, but but that's usually involving a product, you know, that's software. Or that's a smartphone app. Right. Making cat, um, cat pictures or something. It's, right. You know, t- Twitter uh, debuted its its product, what, in, in 06 or 07, and it was famously buggy. And, and sometimes it would go down for hours on end, sometimes, you know, 48 hours a, at a time. Um, but no one's, live, no one's lives were endangered uh, by that. And um, sorry to inter- interrupt. Right, but if, right. if only Twitter could go down for 24 to 48 hours at a time right now, right. We, we might all be safer. Right, right. <laughs> Um, so, you know, that was a fatal mistake of, uh, Elizabeth, um, and of her, her, uh, you know, partner in crime, uh, Sonny Balwani, her ex-boyfriend is that they, they applied the Silicon Valley sort of computer industry playbook to, uh, medicine. And, um, you can't, you can't really do that. I think that's one of the big lessons of the Theranos scandal as, uh, Silicon, the traditional Silicon Valley and, uh, the medical uh, technology industry converge. I think it's that there there are limits to applying the Silicon Valley playbook to medicine and to healthcare. You, you brought up Sonny Balwani. Tell us about him, his role in the company, his relationship with Elizabeth, and and where is he right now? She really gets a lot of the focus, but if you read the book, it's it's actually kind of hard to tell whether or not she was listening to him or whether or not she was tolerating him. I right, what you right. Think. So he, he's a guy who's 19 years older than she is. And, and he actually met her when she was just, uh, 18 years old. Uh, she hadn't even started her undergrad studies at Stanford. It was the summer between her senior year in high school and, uh, her freshman year at Stanford. And they were both enrolled in, uh, Stanford's intensive, uh, summer Mandarin program. Uh, which uh, includes a couple year, a couple uh, weeks of instruction in Beijing, and they met in China. Um, and then, um, you know, they they uh, I I don't believe I don't know for sure, but I don't believe that uh, that it was a romantic relationship then. Uh, but they stayed in touch, and then uh, eighteen months to two years later, when she dropped out with her plan to to found a startup, uh, they got back in touch. And uh, soon he became her boyfriend. He, he had been uh, married to a Japanese artist at the time. He divorced her. He moved down from San Francisco to Palo Alto. He bought a condo in downtown Palo Alto. And by 2005, she had moved in with him. And the first, I'd say, uh, half dozen years of, of Theranos' history, uh, he was sort of uh, – he was her romantic partner and he was also her business partner, sort of her consigliere in the background. Um, she would often start senses with, you know, Sonny Says – um, and so it was clear that that uh, he was giving her a lot of advice. Um, he then joined the company in late 2009 because by then, by the fall of 2009, she had um, run out of the, the nearly $50 million that she had raised uh, in the first three rounds of funding. And uh, the company was on the verge of going bankrupt. So he stepped in and he guaranteed uh, a credit line uh, with his own wealth. And um, at Which, that, how would he? How would he? He, he had made uh, he had made anywhere between forty and a hundred million dollars um, in the late nineties, really at the peak of the dot com bubble, when he had joined this uh, tiny obscure uh, startup uh, a couple months before it was uh, acquired by another uh, uh, startup, and that that itself had gone public and. Um, so, you know, for a couple months work, uh, he, he was the number two executive at the startup and yeah, he walked away with more than $40 million. And so that, that's where his wealth came from. Um, and it actually, I think played a role in, um, convincing Elizabeth at, at that young age when she first met him, 18 years old, that, you know, that he was the real deal. This was a guy who was worth a lot of money and, and who'd already had this big success in Silicon Valley. Um, I don't think she realized, you know, what a casino the dot-com boom had been and how lucky, you know, he had gotten. I mean, his his timing was unbelievable. He joined this uh, startup a couple months before it was acquired for $250 million. Um, he certainly didn't see himself as, as lucky. He saw himself as a, as a brilliant businessman and a brilliant entrepreneur. 
So anyways, if you fast forward back to late 2009, he now has skin in the game because he's guaranteed this uh, credit line from a bank uh, to, to keep Theranos afloat, and he joins as the number two guy. And at that point, um, the culture of paranoia and secrecy, uh, the culture that was already quite toxic because of the way uh, Elizabeth had been running the place, that culture goes into overdrive, um, and he becomes the hatchet man. He becomes her enforcer, um, and there's no question that he was a terrible influence on her. Um, uh, however, in, in the epilogue uh, of the book, I push back against the notion that you know he was uh, the puppet master um, and that she was the puppet. Um, they they really had an equal a partnership of equals, uh, and if anyone you know had the last say when they disagreed, it was her. Um, uh, she she ha- she controlled more than ninety nine percent of the voting rights, and um, you know a, a lot of uh, employees who worked with them told me that when there was a dis- disagreement or there was some something she didn't want to do, it didn't happen. I mean, she really did have the last say. So I don't think you can uh, put all the blame on on Sonny's shoulders. I think um, it's undeniable that he was not a good influence, but, you know, she was old enough and mature enough to know what she was doing. I want to ask about their business partners now. You mentioned Walgreens earlier on was the first major corporation to come in and say, yes, we want your technology in our stores. How did they get to uh, the point where they were working with Theranos, knowing that, as you said before, their technology didn't really work? You'd think that a company like that, they would have checked this stuff what exactly happened? Right. I mean, it's one of the most unbelievable parts of, of this whole Theranos saga is in 2010, um, Elizabeth and Sonny approach Walgreens uh, and tell uh, uh, the company that they've, you know, come up with this invention, this this blood testing machine, which can test pretty much everything from just a finger prick of blood. That's actually a lie when when they they say that because at that point what they have is the Edison. They have the converted glue robot that can only do one type of test known as an immunoassay, which is a a type of test that uses antibodies to to trigger a a, uh, chemical reaction that leads you to to be able to, to read the concentration of the analyte. And and there are at least three other big classes of blood tests um, that the Edison could not do. Um, and so when they were uh, making that representation to Walgreens, uh, they were outright lying. Um, Walgreens at that point was intrigued. Uh, Walgreens is a 100-year-old uh, business locked into this uh, big rivalry with CVS uh, and uh, is always looking for a, a new way to... to um, uh, supercharge growth and and you know pharmacies and and the retail business is pretty stagnant and so if you can find any edge uh, those companies are always on the lookout for it and they, they had this innovation team and uh, in particular this guy uh, who was a, a doctor by training Jay Rosen uh, who was uh, enamored with Silicon Valley and uh, he became very quickly a, a huge advocate uh, for the Theranos partnership. Um, but Walgreens actually also hired a consultant, uh, an independent consultant named Kevin Hunter, who had a, a small uh, lab consulting firm uh, in the Chicago area called Collaborate. And so uh, Hunter um, uh, became um, uh, part uh, of the innovation team. Uh, he became in- embedded in the Walgreens innovation team for some months and started kicking the tires and doing due diligence on Theranos. And very quickly uh, started smelling a rat. Um, you know, he'd worked for 10 years at Quest before uh, creating his firm. And, and he really knew the ins and outs of the lab business and what was possible and what wasn't. And there were a bunch of things that happened that made him suspicious. Um, and he tried uh, to alert uh, his superiors uh, in the Walgreens innovation team, uh, one of whom was this Belgian executive named Renat van den Hoof. And... Uh, and at one point when he's, you know, some, something that, that he found particularly suspicious happened, I think it happened um, during a conference call, during a, a video conference call that they held with Theranos. The consultant found something the, the suspicious. The consultant. And so they were in Chicago. Elizabeth and Sonny were in Palo Alto. They were having a video conference call. And I think uh, something happened uh, in that call that, that sort of ratcheted up Hunter's suspicion. And he goes to Renat and he says, you know, you guys really need to slow, put the brakes on. And and 
Van den Hoof sort of puts him off and, and says, we can't not pursue this. We can't risk a scenario where CVS has a deal with them in six months and it ends up being real. And so uh, Walgreens ends up ignoring its own consultant, whom it hired to, to protect its own interests, uh, because it has this fear of missing out, FOMO, as it's known. Right. Um, and and that is uh, it's a crucial moment in in the story because every almost everyone else who comes after Walgreens sees that Theranos has a deal with Walgreens right. and that by 2013 has gone live with its finger stick tests in Walgreens stores and thinks well surely Walgreens has done its homework surely Walgreens has done its due diligence um, otherwise they wouldn't be exposing their own consumers to inaccurate blood tests. And little did they know that, in fact, Walgreens had not uh, properly done its due diligence and, and was, in fact, uh, exposing its consumers uh, and putting them in harm's way. There was This, this is a repeated theme in, this, in the book, is Theranos and Elizabeth Holmes using big names or not really being truthful about something that had gone on, experiences that they'd had, and using that to say, oh, yeah, well, we're working with them or that. There right. was Johns Hopkins. Tell us yep. about these different examples. Jim Mattis. Right. I mean, it happens also with the people she surrounds herself with. I mean, it's in some ways you could call it a reputational laundering. Um, uh, one of the things she does over and over uh, in the course of the 12 years before the, the Theranos scandal gets exposed is she um, – uh, gets in with a, a, a someone who's older and, and has a great reputation and gets them to, to support her and to back her and uh, to champion her. And the, f- the first guy she does that with is uh, a very um, a sort of well-respected Stanford engineering school professor named Channing Robertson. And he uh, joins her uh, new startups board uh, back in 2004. Uh, and, and then she meets, uh, soon after she meets a... Uh, pretty well-known venture capitalist named Don Lucas, uh, who, among other things, had uh, helped groom Larry Ellison in the early days of Oracle. And she um, leverages Lucas's connections and um, and is able to uh, get more funding through his connections. And then in 2010, Lucas uh, starts developing Alzheimer's disease. So she pivots to George Schultz, the former Secretary of State. Um, and uh, she... Um, you know, wows him with her claims about what she's achieved. And, and he's a guy who um, has always been passionate about science and he believes her and he starts spending a lot of time with her. And before long, he's part of her board. And then through him, she meets all these other, uh, you know, guys with great uh, reputations like Henry Kissinger and Jim Mattis and uh, Sam Nunn and, and Bill Frist uh, Admiral Roughhead, um, and uh, the reason is that a lot of these guys are senior fellows, like George Schultz at the Hoover Institution, which is the conservative think tank that's on the Stanford campus. And um, and then you know all these guys join her board too. And uh, so by by 2014, 2015, she's got this unbelievable board of larger than life you know personalities. Um, and she does it also on the business side with the partners. She um uh, she she manages to um uh, ingrati- ingratiate herself with Steve Bird the CEO of Safeway the supermarket chain and and also with two guys at Walgreens the the former chief financial officer of Walgreens a, ni- a guy named Wade Mickelon and then uh, the guy I mentioned earlier uh, Dr. Jay Rosen who uh goes by Dr. Jay um he's from Philadelphia and, and so his great joke is when he introduces himself to people is, um, I'm Dr. J and I used to play basketball, which is a, an allusion to, um, to Julius as, Irving. as anyone, you know, who, who knows Philadelphia or lives in Philadelphia is Julius Irving. Um, uh, and Wade Mickelon and Dr. J, um, become instrumental to, um, the, the, the Theranos Walgreens partnership getting off the ground. Um, and they ignore uh, Kevin Hunter's warnings, the, the lab consultant. And, and uh, you know, that, that's how Theranos, uh, a couple of years later, comes to, to uh, uh, debut its, its technology in Walgreens stores. I think there was a third key piece of information that validated this company in the eyes of the press, in, in my mind at least, um, or in the eyes of people who were watching. 
it was it was the board and these impressive people that they were working with. It was the corporations that had signed on to do things with them and who were vouching for them. But then there was the valuation of the company. As, that I remember the big valuation being an, a $9 billion valuation when I saw it at some round. Right. Tell us about that. I mean, what what was going on there? Was this from the deals with Walgreens that that was being created? Was it with investors? Or who was who was who who had invested at the company at that point to make it worth that much money? Right. So the I, I believe the 2010 valuation, uh, she was able to raise money in mid-2010 as she started talks with Walgreens and Safeway. I think that valuation was just under a billion dollars, uh, $900 million or so, uh, which was already a, a huge valuation for a company that had no revenues no and, revenue. and a, a technology that basically didn't work. And then it gets really out of control in um, late 2013, where uh, she uh, sells shares to a couple of VC firms uh, that then uh, dole them out to their limited partners. One of them is the, uh, a firm headed by the son of Don Lucas, Don Lucas Jr. Um, and at that point, the value the valuation spikes up to six billion. And then a couple months later, uh, in the final round, um, she uh, sells um, uh, entities like Partner Fund Management, which is a San Francisco hedge fund, and then uh, the family offices of mm. a bunch of billionaires. And then the valuation goes to nine, and then the ten billion. And um, you know, to the question, what what is that based on? Um, I mean, it's hard to to understand or fathom. Um, they were she and Sonny were making uh, incredibly aggressive, uh, even you, you, you cannot really say outrageous claims about uh, what the revenues and the profits were going to look like in, in coming years. Um, and and so, arguably, the the valuations were based on those, um, but. Um, it's still incomprehensible that that people parted with so much money uh, at such a high valuation without really verifying that the technology worked. For those just joining in, you're listening to the Business of Healthcare on SiriusXM 132. I'm John Barquette, and I'm speaking with John Carreyrou, the Wall Street Journal investigative reporter who first broke the story on Theranos. I want to ask you now, John, about the people who did speak up, who did see that there was a fraud being carried out. And there were folks from early on who were doing this. In fact, the story has way more of those folks than I think I would have thought right. from after reading your first piece. Can you yeah. tell us about some of those people? Yeah, I mean, there, there's a, a litany of people who either get fired uh, for raising questions or for trying to tell her that what she's trying to do uh, isn't going to work if she goes about it this way and she ignores them and, and she either fires him or Sonny fires them when he comes on board. Um and I think for a long time, the problem is that, um, you know, these people were afraid to say anything uh, because she proved very early on in the history of the company that she was willing to sue. Uh, she sued three ex-employees for supposedly uh, stealing trade secrets in 2007. Uh, she then sued her ex-neighbor, uh, Richard Fuse, in 2011. At that point, uh, uh, David Boyce had become the the outside counsel for Theranos, um, and and Boyce was acted sort of like a scarecrow, um, wittingly or not. Um, you know, uh, employees who were fired or, or who were working there and had qualms thought that if they tried to blow the whistle either to the board or to the media or to a regulator, they were convinced that that uh, Sonny and Elizabeth would come after them with everything they had, and that, that the the person they'd be dealing with was David Boyce. Uh, and and sure enough, they were right because um, when a few employees did uh, get up the courage to speak to a reporter, uh, namely me, uh, that's exactly what happened. Um, and so, you know, it, it's uh, it's a case where um, with NDAs and with a uh, uh, a track record of of uh, litigiousness, you know, she was able to keep sort of her secret. Um, a secret for about 12 years. And it's, it's incredible. There, so what So what eventually happened? I mean, um, I want to get to uh, a couple people who I thought really stuck out. I mean, what, there was one, there was an early person who was hired from Apple, as I recall, right? who left the company. What, what happened with that person? Well, there were several people from Apple, um, uh, at least... I thought there was a woman. Uh, right, there was. Uh, and um, her name was Anna Ariola. 
um, she left because she found out uh, from uh, another early employee that um, Elizabeth was had inked this deal with Pfizer, the pharmaceutical company, to have Pfizer use uh, its its um, blood testing machines in a uh, trial with in a clinical trial with terminal cancer patients in Tennessee. And um, what Anna may not have realized is that the, the, the results from the Theranos blood test were not going to be used to inform the medication regimen of these cancer patients. Uh, Pfizer was just going to look at the results and compare them to the regular way it drew blood. But it was still, um, you could still argue um, that it was unethical to put these terminal cancer patients through the pain of pricking their fingers several times a day uh, and putting their blood in a device that absolutely did not work. Mm-hmm. In fact, the, the technology back then was such uh, uh, a work in progress that in the midst of that trial, she pivoted away from the first iteration of the Theranos technology, which was a microfluidic device, to the Edison, which was this con- converted um, glue robot. That happened, that pivot happened in, in the middle of this clinical trial. And she, of course, never informed uh, Pfizer of it. Um, in the end, the, the Theranos results looked bad anyways, so Pfizer you know, pulled the plug on, on, that, on that pilot. Um, but uh, Anna is an employee who, who left after just a couple months on the job because she thought it was unethical um, to be, you know, to to to, to put uh, dying cancer patients through the the hassle uh, of of using, you know, of trying out this this device that totally didn't work. And there was a board member too who early on, I recall, he had to scan and copy all of the board documents. Or tell us about that story. Well, there's a at the same time as as Anna is going through, um, you know, her her bad experience at Theranos. She's in touch with Avi Tavanian, um, who. Uh, a lot of people in Silicon Valley uh, will know as a uh, longtime friend of Steve Jobs and former colleague of Steve Jobs. He was the the head of uh, software engineering at Apple until 2006. And uh, a couple months after leaving Apple and retiring in 2006, he was approached um, by a headhunter and, and asked whether he would join this the board of this company, Theranos. So he met with Elizabeth Holmes at a cafe. She seemed like a start, smart young woman uh, with a cool vision. She was hungry. And so he decided to join the board. And then over the course of, of the year that he was on the board, uh, he started smelling a rat too, because, you know, uh, her, her revenue projections would get bigger and bigger uh, with each board meeting. Uh, but at the same time that technology that supposedly was always on the cusp of being commercialized, there was there was some new uh, you know, problem with it. And the problem each quarter was completely different uh, that quarter from the quarter before. Um, and then when he asked to see the, the contracts with the pharmaceutical companies that justified these uh, increasing, you know, revenue figures, uh, she told him that, you know, she didn't have copies readily available. And and so he started smelling a rat and he started... Um, you know, pushing back a li- little bit uh, diplomatically against her. In particular, she wanted uh, something done um, involving the creation of a, a foundation that effectively would have increased her, her voting shares. He didn't think that was a good idea. And at that point, um, she decided that he was an enemy and, and she wanted him off the board. And and so she um, uh, told him that. She didn't tell him that directly, but she had Don Lucas the elder Don Lucas, who was chairman of the board at that at that point, communicate that to Avi, and and then uh, Avi um, didn't go away immediately, quietly, and so he was threatened by the the general counsel, and it got ugly, you know. And and this is back in uh, late two thousand seven, so this this tells you that the unethical behavior. Uh, was something that started out very early, and and you know. You, you might not be able to call it fraud back then because she hadn't gotten live with the technology and her claims weren't as yet being made to to um, solicit as much funding as she did uh, later on. But you know she was she was not behaving ethically from an early point at the company. And this brings me to what one of the central questions I've been asking myself as I was reading your book and as I've been following the story is exactly like what kind of villain is Elizabeth Holmes? 
to me, she is a villain. She is someone who sent faulty lab results to patients. Um, she defrauded investors. She lied. Um, but was she just in too deep and trying to save face? Maybe you said just now early on she was doing unethical things. I mean, what do you think about her at this point? Yeah, so I, um, my aunt is a psychologist, and uh, she has a lot of psychologist friends. And uh, some of her psychologist friends actually um, specialize in um, treating narcissists. And so one of the, the uh, lines of feedback that I've gotten through my aunt is that uh, there seems to be a consensus among these psychologists in her circle that, that Elizabeth Holmes is a um, malignant narcissist. Mm. Um, and, and I think that the narcissism, you know, it, it's when you look at what happened and, and you speak to, as I've spoken to, you know, anywhere between 150 and 200 people, uh, who had some sort of involvement with her. Um, I think the, the narcissism is undeniable. Th- this was someone who wanted uh, to join the pantheon of tech billionaires. She wanted to uh, be uh, ranked alongside Mark Zuckerberg and her he- ultimate hero, Steve Jobs. And she wanted the, rich, the, the riches and the fame. More than anything, I think she wanted the fame. She, mm. wanted, she wanted to be recognized as a world historical figure almost. Mm. And she was someone who uh, was not willing to let anything get in the way of that ambition. And it's to the point where um, she was able to lose sight of the real-world consequences of her action, her actions. And, and um, you know, at the height of her fame, she often um, pulled at people's heartstrings by saying that the Theranos technology was going to be... Um, you know, was going to revolutionize medicine and be great for mankind because, um, you know, these finger stick tests were painless and so user-friendly that people would get their blood tested more often and therefore their diseases would be caught earlier and uh, people wouldn't have to say uh, goodbye to loved ones too soon. Um, and, and you know, what she was saying with that was that she, she was showing tremendous empathy uh, for patients. But in fact, her actions... Uh, were were uh, contrary to that. She by by knowingly going live with blood tests that were unreliable. She actually put patients in harm's way. I want to ask what your advice would be to people who join a health tech startup these days. And I'll, I'll say this as uh, someone in healthcare, business, and tech. I'm in that world. There are a lot of people who are successful in tech. And once they had their first success, they say to themselves, you know what I'm going to do next? I'm going to go into healthcare. I'm going to take my disruptive tech experience and I'm going to go solve healthcare in America. Um, what's your advice for that person? Well, th- my first advice would be never lose sight of the fact if you enter the, the medical arena that, that um, whatever it is you're working on is going to impact patient lives. Um, and, and then I would say that... Um, you know, there are limits, especially if you're someone who, who's ex- experienced success in Silicon Valley, that there are limits to the to the Silicon Valley playbook in healthcare. You know, um, uh, we were talking about this earlier. Uh, people in Silicon Valley iterate. You know, they, they, they put out a, a buggy product. Yeah. and Fail they, fast is the famous. Fail, right, yeah. fail fast, and, and we'll get it right eventually. We'll have software updates. People will help us debug this thing. Uh, it's important to get to the market fast. In fact, it's paramount to get to the market fast. And you can't do that in, in medicine. You you really can't. I mean, th- there's a reason it's the most regulated um, industry in the country and in the world. Um, you you have to be careful. And I and then I would also say, and this is all really interrelated, is is science and medical science are really hard. And um, it's not just coding, you know, and it's not just coming up with an algorithm. Um, Science is hard, and, and it takes a long time to get right. Um, and, and so I would uh, caution, you know, people who uh, think that they're just going to, uh, you know, go in and disrupt healthcare right. uh, because, because they have a good idea and because they've had success in the past. You know, healthcare is a different animal. Some of the big Silicon Valley players right now are making very public forays into healthcare. I'd say, again, I mean, 10 years ago, Google had launched something called Google Health. Microsoft had launched a similar product called Microsoft Health Vault. Those things were shelved. 
now you've got Amazon going in, Apple going in with its new right. products. Google has got all sorts of investments right. in healthcare. When you read those, read about those, and these aren't startups, these are no. the biggest comp- corporations in the world. How do you look at them? What do you expect to come from all of it? Well, I'm, I'm not as worried about it with companies like that because these are huge companies that, first of all, they have tremendous resources and the resources to do it right um, and to do it carefully. Um, but they also have reputations to protect. Um, they're not, you know, a startup founder trying to make it out of obscurity um, and, and, you know, trying to get rich. They, you know, Bezos is already rich. Uh, Zuckerberg is already rich. Um, and uh, and these these uh, brands that they have are, are amazing brands. And, and they have those brands' reputations to protect. So I think that um, they're going to be more careful. They're going to be much more careful than a Theranos um, and, uh, and they're going to have the resources, de facto have the resource, resources, the war chest to, to do the work and do it right. And so I'm much less worried. Um, but, uh, you know, do I think that the, the bad blood, uh, and the whole Theranos scandal, do, does it, do I think that, that it carries lessons for, uh, Silicon Valley as increasingly we're seeing, you know, med tech and the traditional Silicon Valley converge? Yes, Absolutely. Uh, there it is. John Kerry was lulling the, the big health corporations into a false sense of security saying, don't worry, you're oh, going to be okay. But I think you'll maybe, be watching, Maybe John. I should say that I'm hoping they're going to do it right. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Well, unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. Uh, John Kerry, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. Where can folks follow your work and where can they get your book? They can follow me on Twitter. Um, you know, my stories are published in the when I when I write. I write in the Wall Street Journal. They're published in the in the journals. So you have to be a subscriber. So I would encourage people to become subscribers of the journal if they're not. And then they can buy Bad Blood at any or at most bookstores, and and they can order it on uh, Amazon.com or BarnesandNoble.com. Okay. Thanks so much. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.